This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. So good morning, everyone, on this rainy Saturday. Uh, the, the title of my talk is uh, The True Person of No Rank. The True Person of No Rank. And it's actually a koan. So um, we're going to be exploring a koan today. And a koan, I think many of you will know, but um, it's a, a story. Um, usually the core of it is pretty short. It's a Zen teaching story. Literally, it means a public or official case, like a court case um, or a record. And in the context of, of Zen, of the Zen tradition, it's the record of an encounter or an exchange between two people. And usually it's a Zen teacher and, a, and uh, his disciple. It's almost always a man, <laughs> a male teacher, although women are not completely absent. Um, so it's usually a Zen teacher and disciple, or it's sometimes between two disciples, often a, a, a senior and junior disciple. These teaching stories are preserved from ancient China of the Tang Dynasty, now more than a thousand years ago. Um, and these stories were collected over time and ordered into various collections, volumes. You can buy them and put them on your shelf. <laughs> and a whole literature of commentary by later teachers developed around these stories and then commentaries on top of the commentaries. <laughs> so this story, uh, which is sometimes titled The True Man of No Rank, you might look, if you look it up, you might find that title, The True Man of No Rank. This one is from the collection uh, that's called The Book of Serenity, and it's number 38 in that collection. So in this story, the teacher or master who is addressing his monks is named Linji. That's, that's how it's pronounced in Chinese. And um, he says, uh, and this is uh, Cleary's translation, quote, there is a true person with no rank, always going out and in through the portals of your face, beginners who have not yet witnessed it. Look, look. The story goes on. A monk came forward and said, what is the true person of no rank? Linji, the teacher, got down from the teaching seat and grabbed the monk. Um, in some versions, he demands that the monk speak. In other versions, he just grabs him and the monk hesitated to respond in any way. He was sort of speechless and couldn't, couldn't act, couldn't respond. So Linji pushed him away, pushed away this monk. And he said, the true person of no rank, what a dried piece of shit he is. Right? What is the true person of no rank? 
Now, the Japanese pronunciation of Linji's name is Rinzai. And this Rinzai, Linji, um, is the founder of the Rinzai school of Zen that takes his name. Uh, the Rinzai school is one of the five schools of Zen in ancient China that survives in Japan to our time, right? So there are two main schools that survive from uh, the early days of Zen in China. The other one, the other one of the two is our school, the Soto school, right? So Rinzai and Soto are the main schools practiced in Japan of Zen. Linji, as you can see in this example, was known for his direct and vigorous demonstration of the Dharma. There's a lot of pushing and shouting and challenging and striking sometimes. Rinzai Zen, as it's still practiced, is well known for its rigorous discipline and for using koans, these stories, as pointers to reality to help the students wake up, to awaken. And when you enter Rinzai practice, and I don't, I've never practiced in this tradition, so this is hearsay, but when you enter Rinzai practice, you are assigned a koan by your teacher. And your understanding of the koan is tested over and over again. And you're invited to merge with this koan. During zazen, you hold this koan. And all the time, waking, sleeping, you just, it's, it's, your, it's your preoccupation. And you are called by the teacher to demonstrate how you have understood it until that teacher is satisfied. And then, having having resolved this koan for yourself, you get another one. <laughs> so it's part of a curriculum. It's part of a list that you work your way through with your teacher. Now, Linji is a very important Zen ancestor for us, although he's not directly in our lineage. And this teaching, this true person of no rank is famous and it's much cited and commented on. And um, I, I mentioned to a couple of teachers and, and uh, friends Zen friends that I was working on this and they all said, oh, that's my favorite. I should have probably given up then, but anyway, I, since it's my favorite, I <laughs> know one of my favorites, I wanted to try to talk, to talk about it with you. So I first heard this teaching, not by reading the koan, you know, as part of study. <clears throat> it was actually a teacher who confronted me with it very directly. Um, and in my, in my encounter, with the koan as uh, brought up by this teacher, it took the form, can you, speaking to me, can you be a true person of no rank? And that's all, that's all that was said to me. Uh, it didn't mention the part about the gates of the face that this true person is constantly going in and out, out and in through the gates of the face. And it didn't mention the monk who came forward to ask, what is it? I was the monk who was being asked or who was invited to consider who is this true person. So the challenge of this koan was not given to me in the Rinzai style, you know, as part of a curriculum of study, but I eventually realized that it was my koan of the moment. And whether I knew it or not, I was presenting my understanding all the time of this koan in my attitudes, in my activity, in my presence, in everything. So in the context of the time and place in which I received 
this koan from this teacher, I had what is usually considered to be rank, right? Rank or identity or form, however you want to translate that, that word. <clears throat> I was already a priest at that point. That's usually considered some kind of rank. I had other responsibilities that could be thought of as ranks or positions in practice at the time. I might have been Tenzo, I might have been serving as Tenzo in the temple where I was. I can't remember exactly what I was doing. Um, and I definitely had positions of responsibility in my work life. You know, I was not, I've never been a full-time monk or monastic except for the practice periods I've done in California for months, a few months at a time, but I've always had a job until now. <laughs> so I was in positions of responsibility at work. I was the head of my department, um, for example. And, you know, after decades of what is called, you know, professional development, right? Notice that word development, you know, which denotes advancement and progress usually. I had a long resume and that resume recorded in order a number of past ranks or positions. So when this challenge, the true person of no rank was offered to me, I had the idea right away that the teacher was trying to tell me, you know, maybe this, this is how I started. The teacher was trying to tell me I needed to give up my ideas about my own importance or my position either at the temple or somewhere else, anywhere else. You know, not give any thought to my position in relation to the positions of others, because that's what rank is, right? Higher, lower, where am I? And I was pretty sure from other indications at that time that I appeared to be ambitious, since I had a long habit of advancing through the professional ranks. You know, those of us who are uh, trained in a profession, this is what it's all about, right? One hoop after another, after another. Now, ambition is kind of a no-no in Zen, right? No gaining, no grasping, no goal. So I was challenged, I thought, to be humble, not to delight in my roles or take them as me or mine. And if I could do that, I would be a true person of Zen that way. So I started to imagine or conceptualize this true person according to certain ideals. They were what I thought were Zen ideals, non-grasping, completely willing to take whatever form was beneficial or met the request of the moment or served the community, you know, the Zen community. Um, to have no self. It's kind of a funny <laughs> phrase, I, just as I read it, to have no self, still something to have. To have no self that identified with any particular position or status. These are all the things that came to my mind as I turned this over and over. What did the teacher want from me? <laughs> Not to be envious of, of the qualities of others. You know, I took this as an admonition and maybe even a critique of my practice. If I wasn't a true person was I a false person, a fake person? I took it to be a critique. I took it to heart as a critique of my effort, of my sincerity even, or of my life. You know, my whole life had been aimed at some kind of success. 
of how hard I had worked, how much I showed up, of my dedication. Wasn't I a true person? Maybe I wasn't living up to my responsibilities in the roles that I had taken up. Or maybe, having been challenged in this way, there was something so unzen about me that I couldn't be, I couldn't be that true person, you know? And I kind of cringe as I recount all this to you, but I'm, it's where I was at that time. And it's, it's how this teaching struck me at the time. But even in that painful frame of mind, I also understood that this koan was pointing out that very suffering and the delusion of comparing, of, of comparing oneself to others or anything to anything else. You know, I wasn't satisfied with what I had. This is why a lot of us come to practice this, this suffering around what we have or we don't have. And even though it was painful to have this pointed out with the koan, I knew there was some truth to this. It took a little longer to see that the koan was pointing out my way forward, um, at least at first, was in not engaging in fault-finding even of myself. And I also realized that suffering, feeling trapped or caught, was based in holding on to plans, to past aspirations, to hoped-for future attainments, or to former abilities that I could see slipping away as I got older and time went on, right? Th these are all forms of comparison. There's always something lacking and there's always fault to find, right? This is the human condition, that what we think of as the normal human consciousness. A therapist I was seeing at that time said to me brightly one day when I, I caught myself expressing judgment and this is, I think this should be embroidered on a pillow and on my, on my couch. She said, the road to hell is paved with comparative mind. <laughs> she was very, I thought, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I entered the story through this gate of suffering and embarrassment, kind of shame. And I was taken in that direction, as I've said, by my own karmic tendencies. And I was setting about doing what I usually did, which was trying to fix what I thought needed fixing in myself and in others, in other in situations, right? Something needs fixing. I thought I needed fixing. So the letting go of past and future, those are familiar instructions to us always in Zen. But the no comparing, no envying, you know, that I thought I was being invited to take up um, in order to put myself down, those were harder. Um, even though they're also familiar instructions, like, like the four immeasurables, sympathetic joy, metta. So I really tried. I tried metta practice as a practice, as a more conscious practice, um, and cultivating gratitude, mudita, one of the four immeasurables, sympathetic joy, right? Sharing in the joy of others and their good fortune. And all of that helped. You know, it helped loosen some of the tightness that I was feeling. And I really took refuge in just sitting, you know, just this over and over again, just this breath, this body, this one right now. And you know, my edges and my boundaries did become less rigid and it became not just a momentary thing, but more of a kind of connected experience. 
And also, if I'm honest, I got exhausted and bored <laughs> by striving and worrying and always checking, how am I doing? What do others think of me? You know, even the teacher who gave me this challenge, I, I stopped worrying so much about what, the, what that teacher thought of me, what I thought of me. But the koan stayed with me, even through all of this kind of turning. It wasn't done with me. And eventually I made it my own. And I stopped worrying about whether the teacher thought I would get it or I had gotten it. I just wanted to thoroughly understand it for myself. So it occurred to me, I had been so caught up in this tangle of fixing and finding fault with myself and feeling criticized that I didn't really know what a true person was. I was too worried about what I wasn't. Apparently this true person was supposed to be me. This is an ancient famous koan, right? So this challenge is to all of us and I'm included. And once I started reading about this koan, I did, I did take it up as a study. I realized that the phrase, which is the title of the koan, right? True person of no rank um, and how the koan was actually presented to me left out an important element, which is what about those portals of the face? What's that about? So let me just repeat what Linji said. There is a true person with no rank, always going out and in through the portals of your face. Beginners who have not yet witnessed it. Look, look, right? So the whole koan tends to revolve around these few words, true person, no rank, and it leaves out the other part. But before I move on to these portals, I just want to examine those words for a minute, that the four words, true person, no rank. Actually, the, the phrase, um, which is rendered in from Chinese into Japanese, puts the no rank part first. Mu-i in Japanese, mu-i shin-jin. So literally, no rank, mu is no, some of you will know that from the famous koan mu. Mu-i, no rank, or no position, right? Another way of translating this is position. And then true person, and I wanna emphasize that that character for man, which is often translated as man, just means person. It doesn't have gender. It's male or female. It's a human being, right? It's just a human being. So, you know, let's note that the Japanese word order puts that no position ahead of true person or genuine person. So, and it doesn't stipulate rank um, the way it often is translated into English. So, what the koan is saying in its wording is a no rank or no position true person. And I think there's a little bit of a different relationship if we, were, if we use this word order between the no position and the true person, right? The no position comes first. Um, actually, the word order kind of collapses the duality because, between some kind of thing that is a no rank and what is called a true person, right? The, the no, moo. <laughs> not, that comes first. So mu-i, that Japanese word i, 
is a is kind of misleading when translated as rank. You know, I'm sure as I've been talking about rank, you've been thinking about rank, about what rank means to you. As humans who live in groups of all kinds, we are always finding our place in whatever society or group we're in. And it's hierarchical, right? Societies are hierarchical. We have family hierarchies, professional hierarchies, educational hierarchies, pay grades, organizational charts, right? The whole thing is like that. Positions or ranks, ranks, let's just say ranks, are gendered, they're racialized, and a whole lot more. You know, in my, in my parochial school, we had to line up by height. My Catholic grade school, we lined up by height, and there was one line for boys and one line for girls, right? And I don't know why we did this, but the, you know, the short ones were in the front and the tall ones were in the back. And we, we have experienced this as a kind of rank. Um, and even though the high rank tall people had to wait to do anything, to go to the bathroom, to enter the gym, whatever, right? We, they made that into a kind of virtue. We just always finding our place and comparing ourselves to other people. But I think that this strong association of our word rank only goes so far. And while most translations use the term rank for E, this character in Japanese that reads E, I think it's better to just think position. And of course, this messes with the classic, you know, nature of this koan if I change this, but I'm, I'm going to do it anyway, just to help us out, to help me out. And actually, I found out that Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Zen master, uses position when he talks about this koan, and that Kokio Henkel, um, Reverend Kokio, who is known to so many of us, um, also prefers it in, in this koan, rather than rank. You know, it's less loaded than our term rank. And as I played with this, I, I realized that position to me has a strong sense of location. You know, even though we, we use it to um, refer sometimes to employment, you know, a role or a function, um, something it shares with the association, uh, with rank, this association of uh, a role or a function, the root of the word position is to put something in place, right? So there's a place. So no place, not just no role or no function, but no place can't be found. Right. Um, it leads us also, I think, to a sense of time. Positions of whatever kind are not permanent. Everything is moving all the time. Uh, we can strive for position. We can try to hold on to a position. Any, any state, we can try. But we only occupy them temporarily. Of course, temporary also comes from the root meaning of time. Right. I mean, a change in rank is a change in position. But saying just position, this moment where you are, where anything is, is less comparative. It's just this right here, right now. So the true person is one who is mu-i, no position, or even position-less, right? Not as a lack, but just no position. The position-less true person, right? And as I said before, the mu as in less or no, 
um, is the same moo as another famous koan, which I briefly alluded to. And this is whether a dog has Buddha nature, um, which is in a different collection of koans, the one called the gateless gate, which is literally the no gate. Um, the answer is, um, does a dog have Buddha nature or not? And the answer is moo, like, well, is it yes or no? <laughs> does he or doesn't he? So this moo, no or non, it goes beyond our ideas of humility, putting others first, willingness to serve in any form asked. And it's definitely not about replacing one identity or rank with another improved, even better Zen rank, right? True person, the best Zen rank. It's not about that. No position, I think, means true person cannot be located or fixed in space and time. And I think we could relate this no location true person uh, to another concept which we find in Dogen, the founder of Soto Zen, our, our founder. And that concept is Ho-i. Um, it's, that's usually translated as Dharma position, right? Ho is Dharma, E is position. Um, and this is phenomena, all things at the intersection of space and time, where in space and time intersect is where you are. An example frequently given um, of this is firewood, as mentioned by Dogen in Genjo Koan, one of his, one of my favorite fascicles of Do Dogen, his, one of my favorite essays by him, where he says firewood as a phenomenon, uh, as a Dharma position, is a complete expression here and now. It's just firewood, right? It isn't a tree and it isn't ash, which we think of as past and future, right? Those are cut off. It's just firewood. It's completely firewood. It's a total expression of here and now. So not being caught by before and after, firewood, if it could, if it could think of itself, <laughs> would be liberated, firewood is liberated from some idea of firewood and past and, and future. It's just firewood, like if firewood had ideas in the first place. And actually we are liberated with the firewood. Ho-i or Dharma position seems to me then to be related to Mu-i, not being identifiable with any position. So who or what is the true person, asks the student. So now I want to shift to the monk and the dialogue or the exchange. The student is right here, was right there, going in and out of the gates or portals of his face. Linji invites beginners to see this person, right? Look, look, he says. So what can we say about this true person going in and out of the gates? Um, the word here for true is shin. It's a different character than the word shin, which means heart or mind. It's a, it's a totally different character, although it's read the same. So it's not the shin of heart, mind. It's the shin of true or genuine. I think if we think genuine, we think false because we think in terms of opposites. That's what I was thinking, right? If I'm not a true person, I must be a fake person. I'm not a real person. 
This kind of opens a door though. We want to be genuine. We want to be real, a reality person. Now in the record of Linji, which is a collection of all of Linji's, this teacher Linji's sayings and doings, like every, all of his teaching, there is also a record of this encounter between Linji and this nameless disciple. These poor monks, they're almost always, they're often nameless. I think they're like, they represent all of us, this whole group of people who's always trying so hard <laughs> to get it, right? <laughs> Working really hard. So the teaching scenario in the record of Linji for this koan, it's almost exactly the same as the koan I've been reading to you, but there's one difference and I wanna, I wanna mention it because I think it helps. Linji starts out by saying, on your lump of red flesh is a no rank or positionless reality person who is always going in and out of the face of every one of you. So I've used my, my own translations or, or, or choices for how to translate these terms. I'll read it again. <clears throat> On your lump of red flesh is a positionless reality person who is always going in and out of the face of every one of you. Right? So the change is, the, the main change in the record of Linji is this lump of red flesh. The reference to this lump of red flesh is found in a few other places in Zen. It gets taken up, but I think Linji is the first one to use it. And it's very arresting. I'm a vegetarian for one thing, so it, it really grabs me. <laughs> you know, a lump of flesh is kind of formless, right? It doesn't have particular characteristics. It's flesh and it's red flesh so it's fresh, right? And it's exposed. And although it's only flesh, it's really not apart from bone or from organs or anything else that's a body. You know, it's not a body, but it's also not apart from the whole body, right? It references the body, the whole body. So this lump of red flesh with its portals is how the true person is moving, experiencing, not in one place or time. And it's doing this through the senses, right? Through our bodily senses and through being alive and aware. And in discussing this very koan, Thich Nhat Hanh, um, whom I mentioned before, he quotes the Anudara Sutta, um, which says that the Tathagata the Buddha, right, the one who neither comes nor goes, <laughs> the true person, who is also you and me, cannot be for found in form, nor outside of form, nor in feelings, perceptions, mental formations, or consciousness, as the Heart Sutra also says, but we also transcend these things. The Buddha transcends these things, or maybe it would be better to say is not bound by them. So the genuine true person is not anywhere in particular, but isn't really anywhere else either. And is not nothing, but is a person, a human being, a true human being, not bound by space or time, not bound by their experience, but totally experiencing, totally at home, 
and always arriving home and leaving home with every moment, with every breath, with every glance, with every sound, with every encounter. A true human being who is actually encountering and being encountered takes the form of a monk, took my form, <laughs> and stepped forward and asked Linji a question, right? Who is this person? The monk seems to think that the true person is someone else, someone other than himself or herself. The monk hesitates to respond to Linji and Linji says, when he like pushes him off, the true person is a piece of dried shit. <laughs> That's another really arresting, crude, <laughs> earthy <laughs> kind of expression. And it contrasts, I think, with the equally vivid red flesh, which is why I like that version in the record of Linji, right? Linji says, lump of red flesh, and he closes the encounter with the monk as saying, dried shit. I think there's a kind of symmetry there, right? The movement in and out of the senses of our faces is the functioning of this otherwise formless red flesh. The true person right there, the monk, not aware of his experience, but caught by his concepts, by his questions, has to ask who or what he is, right? And Linji responds, by saying, what a piece of dried shit. You, the true per you're a true person. You're presenting as a dried piece of shit. This true person is sealed up by inside of himself, right? The gates are closed, stuck in his position and unable to respond to reality and to the invitation presented by, look, <laughs> look. Rather than fresh and vividly alive, even his shit is dried up, you know. It isn't fresh, it isn't steaming, it doesn't smell. It's not in this moment. And like me, I like to imagine the monk might have been chastened by the teacher's response to the question. We don't know what happens after that with this monk. You know, there he was bravely presenting himself to the encounter and his answer is dried shit. But that doesn't mean he wasn't in fact a true person, just not awake to it, not aware of how things really are. The invitation is to realize, actualize, and wake up to reality person. So Dogen famously said in his essay, Genjo Koan, right, which is the koan of full expression of right now, to carry yourself forward and experience myriad things is delusion. That myriad things come forth and experience themselves is awakening. And he also said, and this is probably the most famous quote in all of Dogen, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by myriad things. When actualized by myriad things, your body and mind, as well as the body and mind of others, drops off. It falls away. No trace of realization remains, and this no trace continues endlessly. So this, to me, kind of epitomizes Linji's understanding 
through our teacher. Not that it depends on Linji's understanding, but it feels to be aligned. Maybe a better way to say this would be aligned with Linji's understanding. So I see this teaching story as an invitation, and I think I'll be working with it all my life, the rest of my life. The teacher who presented me with this was inviting me to meet and express my true self beyond comparison, beyond everything, beyond concepts, to be free. I don't believe at the heart of the invitation was the fault finding that I felt and that we often feel um, and sometimes experience, you know, coming to us that we find fault with ourselves and we feel criticism. I don't think that that was at the heart of this encounter with the teacher that I had. And I think that's true also of Linji and his student. So I would like to choose to experience and to emphasize the compassion um, of this teaching as passed down from Linji through the ancestors to us. It is an invitation that Linji expresses by grabbing us by our robes and urging us to experience our experience, to be fully alive in this moment and express fully this unique position in place and time, freed from believing anything about it. We are completely unique and particular and always changing. To be actualized by myriad things is freedom it is intimacy with true self or big mind. The heart of Dogen's teaching is that impermanence is Buddha nature. And many centuries before him, Linji invited his students to experience this. We are Buddha, all things are Buddha. And the longer I live, the more I feel the fleetingness of existence and I marvel at the discontinuities of my various selves, my, my ranks, my positions. I feel less caught and more at ease because I've realized trying to control things doesn't actually help anything. And trying to be someone we think we should be also misses the mark. So I'd like to close um, with uh, Dogen um, this is not from the Shobogenzo, it's from the, you know, from his collection of essays. It's one of his poems. He, he was a poet and he wrote poetry in both Chinese and Japanese. Um, and this is one of his waka poems, um, which is a poem in a particular Japanese form, you know, like, like haiku has a particular form. I'm not going to read it in Japanese because I wouldn't do it justice. Um, but what he says is, this is uh, the title of this poem is, um, the ten quarters of the world, which means, you know, all directions, all phenomena everywhere, the true person manifests. Um, and the, this true person is, uh, in, in the way Dogen renders this, is the reality, the true reality human body manifests throughout the, the ten directions. And it says, um, it's a short poem. The, the true person or the true human body um, in this world is a genuine person, but like the limitless sky, can't be found, can't be seen. 
So it references boundlessness and no thing in particular, reaching through all space and time and in all directions. So thank you very much for listening. I've asked Bruce to recognize anyone who raises their hand to ask a question or make a comment or enter into a dispute. <laughs> uh, Dave has a question. Thank you, Choro. A lot to think about here as always with your Dharma talks. <laughs> But I will, I will um, say that for me in my professional career, and then as I've been engaging more in Zazen and Buddhist practice, exactly this conversation is basically what I'm constantly struggling with. Something will happen at work. I won't be real happy about it. <laughs> I will go for a walk in my neighborhood and I will say, essentially, what does this thing that I'm not happy about mean if I'm a person of no rank? But I won't be using those words, but that's essentially what I'm, I think I'm struggling with. Um, so uh, this, I really appreciate this and there's so much to think about here. Um, so you mentioned at the beginning about your professional development and your accomplishments is uh, uh, in your career. And um, the thing I'm, I wonder about is um, you have this uh, awareness uh, of uh, this person of no rank and you've, you've dug so deep into it. Um, and um, I'm curious about your awareness of this, your experience of this in your professional career, as opposed to your post, I think you had an academic career. So in your, during your academic career and post your academic career, what was your experience of this? And you alluded to it a little bit, but I'm, I'm curious if you could maybe go a little deeper into that. You know, for example, how far were you into this when you were in your academic career? How able were you to work with this when you were in when you were an academic versus how far are you into it now and how are you able to experience and work with it now? Oh boy, thank you for that question. Um, so, you know, some of this is like now really in the past and it's hard for me to match up my Zen practice, you know, as a, be a kind of beginning practitioner when I was already mid-career in my career. And yes, I was an academic. I had a, an academic job. Um, and I had, I mean, one of the reasons why in academia, at least in some quarters of academia, we are so obsessed with position is it comes with job security, right? So, you know, you work yourself into the ground first to get the degree that you need and then to pass whatever, um, you know, pass through whatever uh, tests there are. And in my case, you know, the prize, the, the, the brass ring was tenure, <laughs> right? Tenure, which um, is really hard to mess up. It, it can be done, <laughs> but, you know, you have lifetime job security and you have, you usually retain your salary or advance through the, you know, you're going to 
have more money and you have benefits. Benefits are big, you know, health insurance and all of that is subject to change within the rank, but the hardest thing to lose is the job itself. Um, so, you know, it seemed to me that that was worth striving for. And I think that was true, you know, in some sense it was, it's a, it's, I always took it as a great gift, you know, that I could have that life. Um, and I, I tried really hard to live up to the responsibility of it as well for a long time, even when it stopped working for me, you know, stopped working for me after some period. Um, so I think um, there are a lot of reasons why we, we, we strive for accomplishment and some of them are, are not bad, you know, they're not wrong. Um, there's nothing wrong with them, I should say. But I think we're, we are, it's, it's just a habit, a human habit to be looking around all the time and like what's, what's going on and that often entails, you know, examining that experience that, that will involve what we perceive to be something else and it's often a someone else, right? What just happened with that conversation? What just happened with that meeting? What happened with that decision? You know, um, and I think it's normal and, you know, kind of natural that we would do that because we are social creatures. And this is the great challenge of Sangha too. You know, this is a kind of society and people hold different positions in the Sangha. We've heard a lot of talks recently about this actually, which is, which is not why I decided to give this talk, but you know, what is lay practice? Why do we have these forms? Why, you know, all of these things like are in some way related to this, even in, even in practice, you know, there are these different positions, but they're all temporary too. You know, it's like, and there's, and there's nothing that, you know, I have that is permanent and there's nothing that I have that someone else doesn't have. You know, there's nothing lacking, right? This is the constant <laughs> teaching. Nothing is lacking <laughs> ever. So I think it's, it is just learning that freedom from what circumstances bring us. And also it doesn't mean not to feel the sting, you know, of an admonition or of a, um, you know, something going wrong in some way. But, but not to let that define us or, or be the whole of it. And to, and to take that then as some kind of reality and, and keep working with that as reality. And you asked me how I worked with this in my, in my um, academic life. So I'll just give you one example. Um, I was a dean for a couple of years in, my, in a previous incarnation. Um, and I had very definite opinions about some of the faculty that would come to see me from having experienced them in, you know, faculty meetings. And then that person would come to me in my office hours with a request or a complaint or something. And it really helped me to, to not have ideas about that person and how I had to react to that person based on my preconceived notions of who they were or how they were or what they were. And so I really did, and this was part of my practice at the time, I really did try to just, I couldn't put down my rank, right? I had power, I had money, I could make decisions that affected this person and their, their departments. It was usually department chairs that came to see me. 
And um, I really tried to say, who is it this time? And to, you know, to see the encounter as fresh and free and, and open to possibility instead of like putting on my armor and going, oh, here's Professor so-and-so, this person's a pain, <laughs> they complain, you know, they're never satisfied, whatever. And just like, how can I help you? You know, how can I help you? That's my job. Not to judge you, not to, not to you know, immediately think, I'm going to say no. Whatever this person wants, I'm going to say. It was really just like, what's, what, what is it this time? Who are you now? Who am I now? It helped. And it helped me. And it also helped me when I had to make a decision that they didn't like to be able to fully express where that decision was coming from because it felt like it was coming from a different place than it might have, you know, otherwise. So um, that's just at that time what I tried to do. Not sure I was always successful, but it felt different to me and better to me. Yeah. Like, yeah, knock, knock, who's there? <laughs> Always, who's there? Sean? Thank you so much for the talk. I definitely don't fully understand it. Uh, I but, don't either. Yeah, <laughs> but I think, I think something that you just said kind of touches on it, so I'll say it first and then I'll ask my question, but I wonder if kind of like having a rank kind of forces you to like you said, hold on to preconceived notions instead of being able to just be present in the moment. But then the question I had had was like, do you think we could live as a collective society without rank or position? Because I think of like, it's very helpful for me to have a boss at my job because I don't know what I'm doing. It's very helpful for them because it's very helpful for them to be like, you should do this and I can trust them. Uh, and so I think maybe, I guess, rank, I guess I'm curious for you to talk about the way rank can be useful and like the, I guess, the ways to not focus on rank that are getting the way of things. Thank you. Right. Good question. Um, your boss doesn't know what he's doing either or what she's doing, by the <laughs> way. <laughs> right? They just do what they think is best or what they think is called for, you know, and everybody tries. Um, you know, even in a even in a Zen monastery, it, well, especially maybe in a Zen monastery, there's rank. It's it, there's like a lot of rank, and at the top of the rank is the abbot or abbess, some, uh, or or teacher, right? Whoever's leading, you know, the, the community, and it's a big responsibility, and people take it up, and there are a lot of ideas about it, and the person who has the responsibility has ideas about it, and so does everybody in the community. But I think, you know, that doesn't mean that we don't step forward and ask questions, right? So I think, again, the encounter that the moment is always arising through encounter. It's, it's not sealed off. It's not just you or just me. It's not the employee and the boss, the abbot and the low-ranked monk. It's always arising together. All phenomena are codependently arising all the time. And that involves, as human beings, what comes and goes through the portals of our face, looking at each other, hearing each other, hearing all phenomenon, but I'm just going to talk about people because that's always kind of foremost in our minds, I think. And you know, I like how Reb Anderson talks about this, where he talks about, he's talking about encounter, I think, but he talks about it as conversation, you know, that 
he says, he said two things in recent years, both of which really stuck with me. He says, I am a conversation with all beings. I am in a conversation. I am nothing but conversation, right? So it's, he's emphasizing relationship and this arising all the time. And he also uh, says, uh, he said this recently, I, I want to be called into question. So it's, he's continuing this kind of metaphor of conversation. Now, this is a, this is a former abbot of San Francisco Zen Center who is, a, you know, has many, many students, teaches a lot, is online these days teaching a lot, very strong presence. People love him, people hate him. <laughs> you know, he's, he's, um, he takes up a lot of space in people's heads too, I think, including mine. But this is what he says as his teaching. Call me into question, right? That's the only way to experience myself and for, and for you to experience yourself. Come forward, be that brave monk. Say, I don't get it. <laughs> or say, I don't think you get it. <laughs> or what is this we're trying to get? Is there anything to get? Just come forward, step forward, use your experience, be your experience. <clears throat> and um, last night when I was reading this talk over, I, I looked up something else, you know, it's sort of endless. And there's one uh, scholar who says that he thinks Dogen is saying the universe experiences itself through us. It uses us. We are the tools of the universe, or we are, I would say, expressions of the universe experiencing itself, which, you know, gives us the sense of vastness and freedom. Like, but it's actualized in the moment, in the place, through each of us constantly arising together. And it happens when you experience anything, right? It's not just people. So that's what I would say. My okay. incomplete and, and provisional <laughs> position yeah. at this moment is, that's it. I really like what you said, because it made me think of like, it's less about a uh, right or wrong. It's more about like pursuit of truth. Like you, just because you had the dean rank doesn't mean you were right and the professor below you was wrong. It could be that way, depending on the case, but it definitely doesn't necessarily mean so. So thank you. Thank you for your question. Jose. Uh, hello, Choro. Uh, thank you for the great talk. Hello, Jose. Um, I, I started, I, I realized some sort of contradiction, I think. On the one hand, we have, or on the one hand, we are this person of no rank, and that is intimately related to our interconnectedness with others. Um, but at the same time, our, on a, I guess more superficial or on our different layer, um, that whatever rank we do have uh, completely flavors our inner our interaction with others. Um, and so it's like we have both this person of no rank as well as this person with rank at the same time whenever we interact with others. Um, is that a fair way of looking at it? I think it's the, it is a way of looking at it and it's, you know, I don't want to go too far off into, you know, Buddhist philosophy, but there's this idea, this teaching of the two truths, there's the relative and the absolute, you know, and so what koans are always pointing to is the absolute, but it doesn't mean the relative doesn't exist in some fashion. And um, so in our conventional reality, there's comparison and there's judgment, you know, there's, there's discernment. 
And so in relationship to the abbot, I am a pipsqueak, right? <laughs> you know, um, and the abbot has that rank, that authority. It doesn't mean that I can't step forward and, and ask a question. And, you know, the abbot should invite that. Um, teachers should invite questions. That's why we have Q&A, you know, I mean, ask me, challenge me, let's, let's do it together. But um, yeah, you know, but it also means that I can put this down, right? If I'm truly free and it, and you know, it means putting it down, right? There are other teachers. There are, there are teachers that apparently have, you know, a better understanding or at least more experience. And I honor that, you know, that's their Dharma position, right? Of the Dharma position, which is not permanent and which doesn't last forever and nobody should be clinging to as me or mine is that, right? There's an abbot <laughs> and there's a beginning student but they truly arise in their encounter, right? It's beyond the idea of their rank. I've seen students who are, you know, very junior, like yell at <laughs> very senior people, you know, in, in after a talk or really challenge them in a quite direct way, which initially shocked me. You know, I went to Catholic school. You didn't, you just said yes and did it, right? Um, but it would take a real transgression to get you kicked out. And sometimes, you know, even in these koans, people get kicked out. There are, there are stories about where, you know, the teacher strikes the student and the student then strikes the teacher and this teacher says, okay, that was real and now you have to leave, <laughs> right? You know, that there are, it's not like there are no consequences sometimes for our full expression, right? But it's a shift and things change. And it's, again, neither good nor bad. It's like, that's just, that's what's happening. And sometimes the student comes back or finds their, their true self somewhere else. And the teacher is saying, you need to go, is we've gone as far as we can. Now, please continue your questioning. You know, it's not like you beat me up and so, you know, you know. this is the punishment. So it's, it is, I think, both things, Jose, you know, it's like we, we do relate to each other, but we can learn something from it too, you know. Who am I really? I'm not this rank. Am I really? Is this, is this it? <laughs> is this who I am? Is this me? You know, you know, no, it's, it, it, it's, it's like firewood. If firewood could think, well, this is a demotion. I used to be a living, growing tree, right? With leaves and, you know, I could experience the seasons and now I'm firewood. Damn, how did that happen? <laughs> no, it's just firewood, you know, and burned to ash completely burned up and expressing the next expression is ash, right? There's, there's no, they're not, and Dogen also says, you know, past and future are cut off, but the present isn't just arising now out of nothing, out of no, there, there is this, this present moment includes everything at the same time that past and future are cut off. And that's hard to understand. In fact, if I try to grasp it, I can't. It's easier for me to think about firewood as just firewood. You know, so the abbot's just firewood. <laughs> you know, the chair of the department, the dean is just firewood. <laughs> it's all, <laughs> and used to be something else. Maybe that's one way of thinking of it. And in the future, we could think it might be ash, but for now, just firewood. And don't get stuck. Just don't get stuck. Thank you, Chara. Thank you.
Thad, did you still have a question? Yeah, I think so. I really appreciate this uh, koan today. And, um, you know, some things that have been emerging for me have to do with the, uh, the myriad components that uh, come together and, you know, thanks to the complexity of this organism form, the little experience of human consciousness. But the, the simultaneity of both, you know, of all of the consciousness, of all that makes this up, um, you know, without position, it's something really big to remember. And as with a few things I've found in practice, um, remembering seems like an effort. Um, and so I can just you know, sit with the origin or the, the stillness and zazen. Um, but it seems like it seems like it deserves kind of some wedge for this remembering of how also um, this incredible symphony of awareness is giving rise to this. And so if you have any instruction on, you know, and perhaps it just, it's one of these efforts that just drops away and balances itself. And then you're speaking a bit more from that ground. But, um, you know, how do you balance the effort of remembering the endless vastness of the self while also, you know, encountering the, you know, the world of a human being? Well, I don't think they're really separate, you know, um, and I think the koan is sort of saying that, that uh, encountering the world of the human being is, you know, reality. <laughs> it's not apart from reality anyway. But I think that the, um, at a certain point for me at least, my own experience is that the effort to remember didn't wasn't an effort so much, it just sort of arose. And maybe it was the constant uh, exhortation of teachers, you know, to like, wake up to like, what's happening now, I, I was in a practice period where the, the she so the head student would just say that over and over again, what's happening now? Just, you know, like a random question. <laughs> what's happening now? And um, that was an that was a kind of reminder that you kind of internalize after a while. So when I'm at my most wrapped up in thought and taking positions, whether I want to or not, I realize I'm taking a position about me or the other person or the situation. When I sit down, you know, to, when I sit Zazen, then I try to just put down the thinking about it, thinking about anything and experience fully, you know, this freedom. But when I'm on my own two feet and doing something, you know, sometimes it occurs to me like, I'm thinking while I'm doing something else. I'm thinking while I'm washing the dishes. What about just remembering, you know, there's hot water, there's soap. I'm standing on this floor, you know, I'm, you know, maybe my partner's behind me moving and I need to be aware of them as well that I don't turn and do something while they're also turning and doing something. And so just, you know, dropping the, the conceptualization all the time and it's a refuge actually to just be in your body 
experiencing your experience. So those are just a couple of things that occur to me. And I think, you know, we do kind of like, fo we focus because there is so much input. We focus on particular things, particular people, particular sensations, thoughts, but, but constantly just op trying to open to a broader horizon and, let it, and especially letting go of concepts and of thinking we're right or thinking we know, like what's going on, who that is, who I am, is a big help, you know, and then there's the sky, you know, this, this, this last poem of Dogen, <clears throat> this limitlessness of the sky, it's a frequent metaphor. You know, we are really, that's really us. We are really like that. We're limitless while we're washing the dishes. <laughs> Thank you. Good to see you. I believe Mark is next. Uh, thank you, Charo. I feel like you really got to the heart of this koan. Really it stood out for me is how my my ego investments, my fixed ideas, particularly about me and about other people, the rank, um can keep me from experiencing the real me, which is in dynamic, we're always in dynamic relationship, going in and out of the portals that, yeah, that really um, brought those two, uh, oh, really made a lot of sense of those two images. Um, I would like to um, offer, uh, as I sometimes do, a, a linguistic point that I think is kind of fun. So in the Chinese text, uh, the word shin uh, for heart-mind, it actually does occur in there after the word for beginning so Cleary translates translates it as beginners, which is you know straightforward and easy to understand. Beginners who haven't seen it yet, look, look. Um, but literally, it's it says beginning minds who haven't seen yet. <laughs> look, look, and. Um, so this raises the possibility that this, this may be where, possibly where Suzuki Roshi first heard this phrase, uh, beginner's mind, uh, which of course really grabbed him and he, he ran with that. Um, I'm kind of wondering if, if the context of it in this koan puts any kind of spin on how Suzuki Roshi used the phrase later? I don't know. <laughs> um, thank you very much for bringing that forward. I, I have to say I know a, a little bit of Japanese, tiny bit, and I know really no Chinese. Um, 
I actually did write to Kokio Henkel, who you know can navigate both languages um, about the meaning of especially of true person and no rank, no rank in particular. And he helped me out with uh, by giving me the Chinese text um, so that I could look things up and then um, offered his own uh, comments about what he took true person you know to be. Um, and just, he didn't say anything about Suzuki Roshi and the be beginner's mind, but just recently when I was again, trying to kind of polish this up a little bit, I did come across that um, beginner's mind and Suzuki Roshi in relation to this. And I decided, cause it's already, my talks are usually dense, I know. And this one was like no exception. So I didn't want to stuff another thing in there um, to say, oh yeah. And Suzuki Roshi mentions this beginner's kind of, you know, uh, perspective, beginner's mind. But um, I wonder because, um, you know, for Suzuki Roshi, this is like beginner's mind is the, the mind of not knowing, which seems to me to be the mind of, of um, you know, no fixed position, right? The mind that's always fresh and open and uh, is not an expert already in who they are or how this is done or, you know, so it's a good thing, you know, it's a prized state and that we are sort of asked to stay in that state or not to lose touch with the mind of not knowing. That's intimacy, not knowing is most intimate is another koan. So I'd have to think about it, I guess, but a little bit more about how it relates, but maybe the, maybe what Linji is saying in his formulation is beginners who have not seen it, who really, who maybe who think they're just beginners, you know, that that's who they are. Look, you know, inviting them to open further, not to be stuck in this idea that a beginner is um, someone who is uh, not able to understand or has to learn or, you know, like you can step into reality at any moment. Doesn't require any special status. The abbot may not be a true person, just might be the abbot because, you know, they stuck around long enough. <laughs> they got tenure and they stuck around and they ended up being a dean. God help us. So that those are just some thoughts, you know, like don't get stuck in being a beginner as a status, as a fixed identity. Instead, you know, open to be open to this, not knowing, experience your experience. Be the, be the universe, be the whole universe that you really are, right? I don't know if that makes sense to you, Mark, but thank you for bringing it up. Yes, it does. Thank you, Charo. I just want to thank you all for your indulgence because Soto Zen does not work with koans in the same way. And I always have feared, you know, taking one up as a topic because I'm aware of what I really don't know. But this one was personal, as you will have guessed <laughs> or noticed. So... I thought I should say something about it. I could try to say something about it. Anyway, don't stop with my understanding, please. <laughs> Go to somebody else. <laughs> Thank you. Well, and, and I, I appreciate that, uh, that we don't exclude study of koans no. simply because it's not a staple or, a, you know, we don't have the curriculum, but that doesn't mean that we can't study and explore and so forth. And, and I had a thought about um, I, I think this I think the koan it, 
as I'm experiencing and responding to it this morning is a, is, is a, 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 an access point perhaps into thoughts of relative and absolute. For example, we all, an example, an, an analogy that's often trotted out is that everything may be one, but that does not mean I don't look both ways before crossing the street because it's very helpful to my <laughs> life to not test the laws of physics in that way. And in, in a more personal instance, I, I, I don't even remember exactly how it happened now, but at some point I was invited to become this rank or to occupy this position that that's, has the label Eno. And I, there is a usefulness in it. When we get to a certain point in the Saturday program, for instance, that announcements might be made, if we did not have a designated person, then we might stand around for a while in, in more or less awkward silence. Or maybe nobody had just crammed into their brain all the things that are on the calendar so he could sound like he knows what he's talking about for once. And, and I think that uh, it, in that sense, it's, it's useful. And also in the sense that maybe I got that invitation because some of those things I was already doing in, in the sense of, of, of um, not just showing up and sitting in my own little cubicle of space, but looking around and attending and responding to, to needs of the moment. And, and Mako said, hey, why don't you actually do that um, more often? Or since you're already doing it, let's, let's give you a title so that it, maybe it eases the interactions between people like, oh, well, the Eno said, you know, whatever. So I, I, I think there is a usefulness in it. And I think that this, this no rank and true person business points more specifically to the limits of that usefulness. The more that we see them as fixed categories or, or try to build them up as things. Um, if I, for example, get too obsessed with, am I a good Eno? Am I a bad Eno? What, what is this on my job description? Is this not? As opposed to, as you were saying, Choro, with, um, in, in the context of being a dean and, and, and meeting professors, it, you, you can either be in that moment and, and, and be present and respond, or you can be limited and have your vision kind of cut off or, or you know, blinders on because of previous expectations and conceptions that you're in, you know, imputing into that particular moment. So. So I, th I think it's, I mean, it's typical Zen, right? It's like, there are no ranks and there's a rank and, you know, now it's useful and now it's not and use it, but don't get hung up on is, you know, I, I think you're also saying it, it, um, it just arises more than, you know, like, like the, the, the thing to do. I don't know. I, I, I've reached the point at which the words are going to not make any more sense. So I will stop, but I appreciate the, the uh, opportunity to, um, to play with that. And, uh, and I, I think it's an ongoing invitation to play. So thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Bruce. Um, I would, I would just want to say, cause I would be remiss in, in not doing this is that I avoided koans for a long time because of my having jumped through so many hoops and passed so many tests had my knowledge tested. And I just saw a, when I heard koan and curriculum together, I said, not for me. 
I don't want to, I don't want to be that person who gets stuck at the first koan, right? Never gets past that first barrier and, you know, constantly gets wrung out of the room by the abbot. So I, I headed for Soto Zen, which was more available anyway. And like just sitting, that sounds good, <laughs> right? Directly jumping into this and I was already middle-aged. So I, I, I'm in a hurry, you know, <laughs> none of this, none of this curriculum stuff, but they are part of our tradition. They're really important. And you'll, you know, they, they become familiar because people will reference them. Teachers will reference them in their talks. And the, this language is in Dogen. He read them, he collected them. He had his own collection of 300 koans. And this one that I talked about today was one of them. So um, they're not apart from Soto Zen. They're just used differently. Uh, and I think, you know, I invite you to dive in as use a term that our, you know, likes a lot to dive in and just, you know, poke around for yourself, look at the cases and see what resonates with you, you know? So um, I think that's worth um, saying. Yeah. Thank you. And Bruce, thank you for being, Eno, and thank you all for occupying your positions in space and time and fully expressing yourselves and helping me to express myself. Appreciate it. <laughs>